So we've been uh, doing a series in Joshua, and uh, we have just reached the point that the people are going over into the Promised Land. Last week we saw that uh, the river, this great river Jordan, parted, and uh, God's people finally walked through into the Promised Land. And uh, we've been calling this Courage for the Battles. Because actually the reality is that we are still in a battle. Yes, Jesus has overcome. He is the king enthroned on high. And he has the ultimate victory. But right now, we are, although in the kingdom, still advancing with this glorious kingdom and pushing back darkness and seeing spiritual battles fought all over this city and beyond. That's the reality that we're in. And so actually, this series has been really helpful to us. It's been helping us to see how is it that today we are supposed to be a part of this glorious advancing kingdom. Now today we get into chapters 5 and 6, and uh, you'll know this story. If you've ever been to a Sunday school or any other sorts of uh, kids club that's been run by a church, then I'm sure you've heard the story of the walls of Jericho. And uh, it's interesting to me, it's a little bit like the Noah story. It's a great story, and so we love to tell it to our kids. But the reality is, it's a judgment story. And uh, honestly, when I've taught that to kids, and uh, under instruction from others on how to teach it, I've got nervous, because I'm like, these kids are a bit bright and they, uh, you know, they ask the question, but what about the Amorites? What about the Canaanites? In the same way that when we teach Noah, people might, the kids might ask, well, what about all the people who were in the flood? I mean, these are hard questions, aren't they? How on earth do you answer that to a child? So I find it fascinating that that is one of our favourite Bible stories to tell to kids. But uh, there we are. So today what we're going to see is actually that this is a an extraordinary story with much more going on than either just a magical story about walls falling down or uh, a story of judgment. Actually, there's something much greater going on. What we're going to see is that God takes humanity's biggest problem and he reverses it. He takes this problem of us being cut off from God because of our sin and the destruction that comes with it. And then he cuts himself off so that we can be joined with him. Actually, this is a story of the gospel shown to us in chapters five and six. And so I'm really excited to get into this because I think hopefully we'll see a, a fresh take on this story that we've maybe heard a few times before. So number one, we're gonna see that we have been cut off from God. Number two, he has cut us off from destruction. And number three, he has joined us to his glory. Now it's a big passage. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, okay? But I would encourage you when you go home or sometime this week, why don't you read through chapters five and six? Um, but today we're just gonna take little snippets to help us to understand it. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your words. I pray, Father, that this morning you would reveal yourself to us through your word. God, I pray that you would help us to see that culture's got this all wrong in this country as to the way that we look at scripture. But actually this is 
This is you revealing yourself to, to humanity. And so, Lord, would you give us hearts that are warmed to what you have to say, hearts that are willing to sit under what you have to say, people today that are willing to say, God, we want to give you our lives and we trust you, we trust in your promises. So, God, this morning I plead with you, would you come and reveal yourself afresh. Save us from ourselves. Save us from death and sin and all the destruction that it brings. And help us to be people who run to the promises of God and your mighty presence. Amen. Okay, let me uh, begin with cut off from God. And we're going to just go straight into chapter 6, okay? We'll go back to chapter 5. But I want us to begin in chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2. And it says this. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Now the first thing that I want to be really clear about here is that this is not the Bible's version of jihad. A rising up of some sort of mujahideen. Now honestly, that is what... I have been asked time and time again before is around this passage and the destruction of the Canaanites. And then people will say things like, well, it, yeah, this is, this is a judgment narrative, um, but it, isn't it more than that? Isn't it ethnic cleansing? Isn't this a problem for you as a Christian? And honestly, there have been times where I've looked at this passage and, and the, the rest of, of what's to come in Joshua, and I think, oh, wow, this is troubling. Is, is this my God who's doing this? And we have to ask these questions, don't we? We can't just skip over them, pretend they're not there. If we believe that the Bible is authoritative, we have to get to grips with the reality of what's being said. And we have to try and understand what is truly being said. Not something that suits us, but something that, but what is actually truly being said. As we've seen in the previous chapters, the promised land echoes back to a kind of Eden-like temple. It's where God's presence dwells. And it, it also points forward to a coming kingdom. A kingdom that will be brought about by Jesus. A kingdom that will advance across the earth. And then one day be fully established as this new creation. This final temple where God's presence dwells perfectly forever. And so that's what we're seeing here. But also we're, we're seeing judgment here as well. And actually this judgment isn't just about the judgment of the Amorites, this term that Genesis 15 uses for all the people in the land, all the tribes, but it's also about the coming judgment, the one that we haven't yet seen. It's a judgment that Jesus will come and bring. He'll separate people out and there will be a judgment. And people will either go to hell or they'll go to the new creation forever and ever. And we have to be real about that. The judgment in the promised land shows us what happens to people who refuse to turn to Jesus. They receive, so if you turn to Jesus, you receive this glorious inheritance, a promised land, a, a fruitful place, a land flowing with milk and honey, an Eden-like experience forever and ever and ever. But it also shows us that when people refuse to turn to God and choose their own way, the consequences of their sin leads to God's judgment. It cuts us off from God's presence forever. 
In Genesis 15, God revealed to Abraham that he's going to give the Amorites 400 years of grace. He was going to be patient with them, showing them that his saving power to Israel was also for them if they would take up. And he said he would not bring judgment on them until the iniquity of their sins had reached its full measure. And actually, God was extremely patient. This was not that he wasn't giving them an opportunity to turn to him. He did, but he kept refusing. And now, God is doing a similar thing. It's been longer than 400 years, but in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes to the churches in modern-day Iraq saying this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, here we are. The Amorites, this term in Genesis 15, for all the people in the land, had allowed this, they'd allowed this self-run way of life to go to its fullest measure. Life cut off from God. This is the consequences of life cut off from God. And it increased and it increased in their society until that point where, according to Leviticus, they practiced all sorts of things like incest and child sacrifices and indiscriminate murder. This, this was totally off the chain in terms of immorality. By 617, we read that the people are devoted to destruction. It's given them 400 years of grace, and now the time has come for judgment. And what have they done? They've, they've closed the door on God, literally, haven't they? That's what we read in, in 6.1. The Canaanites had locked themselves inside the city walls. The door was shut tight, an indignant slam in the face of God. And we know from the text that they melted in fear of God. So they knew who God was through Israel. God had revealed to the nations and to the tribes that God was God. This is the great I am. He is to be feared, revered and turned to for salvation. And they refused. And so... The time has come. This shows us what happens to people without faith. People without faith in God are destined for this moment. A moment where they slam the door in the face of God. And they would rather face destruction than face God. Than own up to their own selfish way of living. Lindsay uh, came home with a couple of cards the other day to send out to friends and uh, it was on their anniversary and uh, one of the cards was a nice pretty looking card, your standard anniversary card and the other one on it was a really nice card too and it, and it said love is love on the front of it. Now Lindsay bought this card very innocently but if you know anything about LGBT, LGBTQ plus rights you will know that that is a phrase that is commonly used to say, well, it doesn't matter who you love. But whoever you love is who you love, and that is love. And so the definition of love has somewhat morphed 
over the years. And, and now we find ourselves in a position where actually as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, there are certain issues, no matter how loving we are, and that's what we want to be, don't we? Extraordinarily loving, but, but also really clear with what we think is best for people. And I'd love to get into that, how we do that, but we want love to be at the heart of it and grace to be at the heart of it and welcome people in with no matter what, but at the same time be really clear about what's best for people. But today we would be seen as do-badders. No matter how well you explain that to people, we're going to be seen as do-badders, not do-gooders anymore. And in about 20 years, it's totally shifted. Now, we would be totally naive not to take note of that. So we look at a passage like this and we think, well, look, that society is way beyond the pale. Like, there's no way we're anywhere near that. And that would be true. We're not anywhere near that yet. But actually, the rationale is there. And there are things going on that are deeply troubling. Things being taught in all sorts of parts of society that should trouble us as Christians and what we believe. And so we need to be real with that. But here's what I want us, I don't want us to go away thinking, oh, okay, so we've got to be moral and good in face of immorality and what the Bible might regard as bad. That's not the message here. And I think that's a real danger of, this of a text like this, is we can go away thinking that that is the message. That is not the message. The point of this passage is not to point fingers. It's to both warn and to give hope to all of us. Aren't we all deserving of destruction? That's the point. We're all deserving of destruction. The Israelites have been disobedient too. They had worshipped other gods and not kept the Sabbath. And even the great Moses got angry with people for not listening to him and made his leadership all about him. And so their generation didn't get into the land. Sin had done this horrible job of separating, distancing all people from God. All people. When Adam and Eve were removed from the land of blessing in Eden, angels, cherubim, were positioned to the east of the garden at the gates with a flaming sword. Genesis 3.24 After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, along with the rest of humanity, had come to this point where they were literally cut off from God's life-giving presence. And it was dreadful circumstances for all of us. That's why chapter 6 should never be read without understanding chapter 5. And God's promise to cut off his people from the destruction they deserve too. Let me explain. Number 2, cut off from destruction. Uh, turn with me to chapter 5 if you have a Bible with you. And we'll just read out verses 1 through 8. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath. 
Hadaloth. I should really have worked out how I was going to say that. What did he say? Say it confidently, nobody will know. Now this is why he did so. All, all those who came out to Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had no, uh, not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that they had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were all, uh, sorry, they were still uncircumcised because they had not been so because they had not been circumcised on the way and after the whole nation had been circumcised they remained where they were in camp until they were healed <laughs> then the lord said to joshua today i have rolled away the reproach of egypt from you so the place has been called gilgal to this day I'm glad i got through that this week lindsay and i uh, were going away uh, for a few days uh, to celebrate 10 years of marriage And uh, it's, it's really an excuse for us to get away and uh, wonderful grandparents coming to look after Annabelle. Now, there are lots of ways, of course, that married couples remember that they are married, isn't there? There's lots of ways that they remember their promises. So we chose to exchange rings when we made our promises to one another. Promises to love and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Christian marriage is not defined by how we feel. It's not defined how we make, how much we make each other happy, but by a promise, a promise to choose to love each other no matter what. When things are good, or when they're hard, when you feel besotted, or your eyes are tempted to wander, your wedding ring acts as a reminder that you are made for in this marriage for one person alone, your husband or your wife. And it's supposed to remind us of a much greater promise, a promise that was given by God. At the beginning of chapter 5, Israel renews its promise to God alone. That's what this is about. Every male was to have the skin at the end of their penis removed with a flint knife. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds brutal. I mean, it just sounds disgusting. It sounds horrible. So what's it doing here in the Bible? I don't, I mean, I get it. God revealing your power to the people um, of Israel through the parting of rivers, the parting of oceans. I get that. Mighty clouds and pillars of fire. I get that. But having them cut off the end of their the skin on their penises. I, I don't get it. Thankfully, we don't have a PowerPoint image for this one. We need to, uh, we need to skip back to Genesis 17 to, to find out what this is about. Okay, so Genesis 17 verses 10 through 13 says, This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And then it goes on to say, in verse 14, my covenant in your flesh is to be an 
everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it's an outward sign of a covenant, an everlasting promise between God and his people. So why did God not just get them to have like a tattoo or something? Or like that's what the other, the other tribes would have been doing. Uh, and what, what about a ring? Wouldn't a ring like this one have been sufficient? Well, because the cutting off of foreskins was a bloody mess. It was supposed to be a bloody mess. And it symbolized the mess of sin and disobedience and its consequences of cutting the people off, literally cutting the people off, separating them, lopping them off from God. It's supposed to be a reminder of that. It was a constant reminder to the people of God that although they deserve to be cut off from the presence of God, God gave them a promise that they would be one day united with him. To multiply them, to be with them, says the promise, and return his people to an Eden-like promised land. So here they are, in the land, right? In God's turf, where Abraham stood. 400 years earlier and they are renewing their covenant to God alone so here in the mess of this nation of men being circumcised not not just with nice but stone flint they're not only being reminded that they're saved from ferocious Amorite tribes from the dry land to the east, from the raging waters of the River Jordan, from the waves of the Red Sea, from slavery under the Egyptians. But God was reminding them that that he would save them from their greatest enemy, themselves. Sin. From their self-centered existence. They were divided and condemned for judgment because of what they had done, their own sin. And God was reminding them in chapter 5 that they too, apart from God's grace, would be under judgment. They could only trust that the God who did part the waves, the God who did save Noah from the floods, who did uh, cause the angel of death to pass over their households by this blood smeared on their doorposts, that God would come and rescue them. There were clues, but they could not know how they ultimately would be rescued by God. They could only trust. But we do, don't we? In Colossians 2, when Paul writes to one of the first ever churches, he says this, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. If you've put your trust in Jesus, God has separated you, cut you off from all the muck, all the sin, all the shame, death, suffering, all the consequences of sin. How has he done that? 
by cutting himself off. Jesus cut himself off from God on the cross and he took your sin with him. And then he was judged in the ultimate circumcision, this bloody mess that saves you from your sin. So right here at the heart of the promise and this circumcision, this strange looking practice, we see that Jesus is the rescuer. He was rejected by the people and God's face turned away while Jesus, the Lamb of God, was cut off with our sin and judged in our place so we could be joined to God. Joshua and all who have ever put their trust in God's promises have been vindicated by a circumcision not performed by human hands. That takes us to number three, joined to glory. So uh, we are going to pick up again in chapter five, and I'm just going to read out verses 13 to 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander as the, of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have? For his servant. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did. The commander of the Lord's army could declare to Joshua, Take off your shoes, you are standing on holy ground, because one day Jesus, whose name, like Joshua's, means God saves, would come and circumcise us, cutting himself off from God with our sin on the cross, becoming sin for us and being judged for us. Now notice that Joshua fell face down in worship. There's a lot of uh, debate about who this is, the commander of the Lord's army. But one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that this is not just a man. And this is not an angel either. This is in some way God himself. Now, I think it's, it's probably likely that it's Jesus, but there's nothing in the New Testament that would confirm it explicitly, and there's not probably enough here for me to say, yeah, definitely Jesus. But I think, high chance, this was Jesus. Certainly God appearing. Now, how do I know that this was God appearing? Well, one, Joshua fell down on his face, worshipping the commander of the Lord's army. And when he did... We've got to remember that this is Joshua. Joshua was an extraordinary worshipper. He was someone who we've seen already would not easily be impressed with anyone but God alone. He's been so faithful in his worship. And so I'd be very surprised if Joshua was to do that. Now, even if Joshua did have a little slip up here, which I don't think he did, then what comes next proves to us that this was God. Because if it was an angel, like Revelation 19 tells, tells John to do, he would have told him to get up. He didn't. He encourages the worship further by saying, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. This passage 
is God encountering one of his people and it's supposed to make us think of other passages. Passages like Moses at the burning bush, who was told to take his shoes off when he was standing on holy ground. We're supposed to think of Jacob in Genesis 32, where Jacob was amazed that he had come face to face with God and did not die. And then we can look forward to people like Isaiah, forward from that place, and, and, and look to people like Isaiah, who hundreds of years later... Uh, was, had his lips touched when he did not know what to say and had no confidence and suddenly God touches his lips and makes them holy and gives them something to say. We're supposed to see that these people like us were broken and sinful but were anointed by the touch of God to go. Declared to be on holy ground and anointed by God to go. If you have already put your trust in Jesus, you are standing on holy ground. You were once separated from God, but now through Jesus, you, by his love and grace, have been welcomed in, not only into a glorious relationship with God, but into his kingdom that is advancing and he has got you positioned perfectly for the mission that he has for you he wants you to advance with him in a fruitful kingdom you are holy and you are commissioned by God every single one of you no exceptions if you've put your trust in Jesus there are no exceptions to this you have words to say Actions to do, roles to fulfill, and people to share God's matchless love with. It wasn't just the Israelites who were clinging on to God's promises that day. You'll remember back to when we were in chapter 2, and there was this mighty woman of faith, prostitute, who had been worshipping many gods, was one of these Amorites, who were supposed to be reserved for judgment because of their actions, part of this culture and society. And she is saved by the grace of God. She puts her faith and her trust in God. And again, we see her in our passage today. And unlike the rest of the city who have slammed the door on God, she's opened her window to God. She's let down uh, this glorious cord from her window like she was supposed to do so she could be seen. It's a red cord and she opens up her window and says God come I trust you I love you I trust in your promises I fear you I'm going to follow after your ways. She's this glorious example that no one has ever ever past the point where they've sinned too much where somehow God can't save them God saves Rahab in this glorious act where we see that this isn't about genocide this is about all of us falling short of the glory of God and for those of us who put our trust in Jesus him and his great mercy and grace even though we don't deserve it rescues us loves us, brings us into his family and says, come with me. 
into this advancing kingdom. Here, as the commander of the Lord's army approaches with a sword of judgment, Rahab opens a window. I wonder if you are someone today who maybe doesn't know Jesus yet. I just want to plead with you and say, look, God loves you. Don't slam the door, open your window. Open yourself up to God. Allow him to come in and speak to you today. Let's turn to back to chapter 6. And we'll go chapter 6, verse 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city, once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. Joshua knew that tough battles were on their way. But God's appearing to him as a commander of the Lord's army with his mighty sword was such a reminder that these battles belong to God. These battles didn't belong to Joshua. He wasn't to make the same mistake that Moses had made. It wasn't about him. It was about God. These were God's battles. And we'll find out this was going to be no victory lap for the Israelites in the land. It was going to be tough times. So although Joshua was a great leader, the reality is there is no leader who is great enough that they can go and do the work of God without God himself going ahead of them. We need God in every way. And we need to know God is fighting for us as well. Although Jesus has come and he has won over death and sin and Satan and suffering and shame, we have not received our full inheritance yet. Glasgow is not all that it should be. It's estimated that about 2% of people in this city go to a Bible-believing church. This city is desperate for God's love, even if it doesn't know it. This week, you'll have seen in the news, 27%, uh, sorry, the the government report on Tuesday said that uh, drug deaths are up 27% in this city last year. 27%. 27%. It takes us to this horrible title of having the highest death rate for drug abuse in the whole of Europe. <coughs> this city is not what it's supposed to be. Now, one day, the new creation, Glasgow will have its place in the new creation. It'll be complete and it's going to be glorious and beautiful. But right now, we're supposed to fight for that now. We're supposed to fight for that so that people today can have freedom in God, not be addicted, not be dragged down by sin and its consequences, not be dragged down by other people's sin in their lives, but for people to be released from oppression, for people to break the habits of sin by the power of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. God is calling us forward. We all personally still face many struggles, don't we? The effects of sin are still causing destruction 
And as Christians, we cannot be content with it, but be willing to fight for the glory of a better way, showing off the kingdom of God as we go. There is freedom, love, and eternal life available for anyone, anyone, who will put their trust in Jesus. And this is why the battle um, strategy of God often seems so bizarre. We're just about to wrap up and we've only just got to the point where we probably would have started in Sunday school. The whole point of this part of the story is that God uses weak things in order to shame the proud. God loves to use us when we're weak. The Israelites would have had no idea how to go about this type of battle. They hadn't done this type of battle before where they had to uh, overcome a city, a walled city. They wouldn't have known. Now, although the Canaanites were melting in fear, this was new to them. And Joshua was gloriously obedient. He didn't just come up with his own strategies and plans. He listened to what God was saying to him. And then they marched around the city in silence for six days. And then on the seventh day, they did what God called them to do. To blow the trumpets. Make as much noise as they could. And down came the walls. Let me tell you a true story about a chemist who attended Jubilee Church. Or attends Jubilee Church in Cape Town. Which is one of our advanced churches that we partner with. His name's Kelly Shabali. He was born in Zambia. He was one of these guys who just, if you looked at him on a, as a statistic, you'd say, well, he's got absolutely no chance of succeeding in life. He grew up in a, 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 a shanty town in Zambia. He failed his end of a primary school exam that meant that he couldn't go to a high school. And so it looked like he would have a similar existence to the rest of street kids, essentially, in Zambia at the time. But he went back and he reset his exam and he passed. And then eventually, long story short, he gets to university, goes to South Africa to go to university. There he becomes a Christian and he becomes passionate about chemistry and Jesus. And uh, at one point, he then is offered this very lucrative contract by Cambridge, having done his PhD there, to be a research fellow. And it would have been a dream. Him and his family would have had a large house, rural England, commuted into Cambridge, enjoyed studying at the, one of the greatest universities in the world. But there was something that was put on his heart when Cape Town University offered him to come along and be on staff there for really not a great wage and no real prospects of having his own team or anything like that at that point. But God put something in his heart and he just knew that he was supposed to be in Cape Town. So he went and he did that. And his church got behind him in prayer. He started off uh, in this university researching and he started to look at ways in which they could combat malaria with an all-African team in Africa. Unheard of. He decides he's going to do it. Go for it. 
Three years later, the Bill and uh, Melinda Gates Foundation gave the University of Cape Town a grant of $5 million with matching funds from the South African government to initiate work on the discovery of new drugs for malaria and tuberculosis. And then this is what a recent report this year said about the drug that they have managed to develop uh, to fight malaria in Africa. It moved through phase one, testing on healthy humans, onto phase two, testing on malaria patients. So far, it seems to kill malaria in all stages of its life cycle. It works against the strains of malaria already resistant to other drugs, and it may be able to block the transmission of malaria through mosquitoes. Last year, Chibali was named on the fortunes list of the world's 50 greatest leaders. And he says this, what I've done would not be possible without God. I put any success down to the prayers of my wife and my church. God loves to show his glory through the weak things. Dream big because our God can do it, not because you can do it. Do you feel weak today? Do you feel a little bit like a, a, a young boy in a shanty town who has no future, no hope? Because you, you might have these big dreams, but they seem so, so distant from you. You can't do them. You're not able to do anything about this drug epidemic in Glasgow. You're not able to do anything about big things like malaria. Your God is bigger than that. And we're supposed to look to God for extraordinary things. Now, what I want to make clear is that that comes by being like Joshua, living a long life of faithful obedience to God, trusting in him, trusting in his promises. And there will be hard times, but keep trusting in God, because as you keep trusting in God, God loves to use you in your weakness. He loves to show off his glory through your weakness. Now you'll notice the walls of Jericho did not fall down until the seventh day. That's very significant. One day your battles will end. One day malaria will be rendered powerless. One day there will be no presidents telling their own citizens to go home. One day no one will be addicted to heroin anymore. One day cancers will not develop and grow. One day you will stop sinning and be wholly united to God and be with his people in a faithful and fruitful place called the new creation forever and ever and ever. So we can have hope, but in the meantime, let's fight for what that hope is bringing. Let's be people who reveal glimpses of the glory of God and his coming kingdom by fighting for others, by laying our lives down like Jesus laid his life down for us so that others might join in with his glorious kingdom and might be released from the horrible effects of sin. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise up first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The final victory is coming. The final trumpets will sound. The final cries and then the forever shouts of hallelujah. But for now, let's continue to walk in the victory of Christ, trusting him 
as we are weak, he is strong. Although we've been cut off from God, he has cut us off from the destruction of sin and joined us to his glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you, God, that we can look at passages like this in Joshua 5 and 6 that maybe seem on the face of it a little strange to us. But Lord, we see as we dig deeper that your glory is on display, your glorious gospel, that although we do not deserve it, your grace reaches us by your own sacrifice. You yourself cutting yourself off. God, you turned your face away from Christ. And Jesus, you were willing to do that for us in this ultimate cutting off so that we could be joined to you forever. Thank you that you've cut off our sin. Thank you that we're now declared holy, that we stand on holy ground and that you're commissioning us for something much greater. I pray, Father, that through the rest of this meeting, you would be putting things in people's hearts that maybe seemed impossible to them before, but now, by your promises, we know and can trust that you can do. God, help us in our weakness to be people who can do mighty things because you live in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you. Come now, be with us in your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take...